0: Following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Ever been lost in a crowd? It happens to people. It can be frightening and it can be, you know, scary. And today we read of a time when Jesus, at age 12, was lost in a crowd. So, if you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read God's word. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 40 to 52. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Lord, I thank you for this day and for this privilege you've given for us to gather and to open your word and to sing your praise. I pray, Lord, that we would see the glory of Christ in this passage of scripture. That we would have the joy of Christ as we contemplate its truths. And that by your spirit and by your word, you would transform our hearts all for your glory, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What does a mother and a son and his father's business have to do with us? Pretty much everything. Now, this passage of scripture today, a lot of people think that it's about parenting, parenting. You know, ever left your kids behind? Uh, Don't feel bad because that's what Jesus' parents did to him. (laughs) This is hope for every parent who's lost a kid in a crowd. Uh, You're not a bad parent. You're in good company. And of course, we all need wise parenting advice, but this passage is not about parenting. It is about Jesus. Some people think this passage is about model of good communication, actually. Uh, Someone said that this is what it's about, four things that Jesus did. Number one, he listened. Number two, he asked good questions. Number three, he understood. And number four, he answered. And we can all learn to communicate better, but this is not about communication. This This passage is about Jesus. Some say this passage is about how to be a good child. You know, hey, Jesus submitted to his earthly parents and, and we, we learn from his example, of course. So kids, you need to be you know, obedient and, and love your parents. And that's a good thing and everything, but that's not what this passage is about either. See, this passage is about Jesus. Some say this passage is about a commitment to God, be all about God's business. Well, good thing, but it's not about that either. It's about Jesus. And, and we need to see the glory of Christ in this passage of Scripture. That's what we need today. The only time in scripture uh, that you see Jesus as a youth, right here. So you see him at eight days old. And, and then in between this, you know, you've got this 12-year-old Jesus. But, and then you've got Jesus at 30. You've literally got one screenshot in the Bible of Jesus growing up. That's it. And, and Luke is just quickly sketching Jesus' life and, and literally gives us one Look. But they say a picture is worth a thousand words this is worth much more this this one look speaks volumes luke one sets the stage and in luke one you've got john the baptist's birth being foretold you've got jesus's birth being foretold uh, you've got mary visiting elizabeth uh, and, and she sings that song we know it as the magnificat that the, the, She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She has just heard that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah, and and she is rejoicing in God, her Savior. She is surrendering her will to God's will. Also in chapter 1, you've got John the Baptist's birth. You get into chapter 2, and you've got Jesus being born, and, and then Jesus as a newborn, eight days old, being brought to the temple. This always blows my mind. He was brought to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord. So the Lord was dedicated to himself the rest of chapter 2, you've got Simeon and Anna meeting baby Jesus, newborn, eight-day-old baby Jesus, and then you've got the passage I read a few minutes ago. You've got this everyday thing that happens that was very frustrating for Mary and Joseph. We pick up the story in verse 40. It says that Jesus continued to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So he's growing up, he's just continuing to grow up in a way that pleases God. So from eight days old and then he becomes conscious of his own life and, and then he, he's growing up and he's pleasing God and next thing you know he's 12 years old. So the story fast forwards uh, 12 years old. It's no surprise that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He got taller, he got wiser... So here's what happens at age 12. Jesus' mom and dad had taken a yearly pilgrimage to celebrate Passover, and they traveled to Jerusalem, and they take Jesus. They're going to be remembering God's deliverance of his people. So verse 41, it tells us that that his parents went up to Jerusalem every year to do this. They were devout Jews. They they worshipped God. They worshipped God together as a family. They were serious about their relationship with God, and they were serious about obeying God in terms of the way he told them to worship him. They had their priorities straight, and every year they would go to Jerusalem. Now, in those days, if you traveled, you walked. We are so used to you know, getting in our car and and going, or hopping on a plane and and going around the world, here, you're you're going to to trek long, grueling miles. It was a five-day walk from Nazareth to Jerusalem, about 90 miles, and so you go from Nazareth in Galilee, you take the road, South of the Sea of Galilee, uh, it joins a big road running along the Jordan River, and you go through the valley, you're, you're also in the desert, and the closer you get, the more pilgrims are on the road. They're all going on the same journey to Jerusalem, and you would travel in a caravan because that was the safe way to travel. There were bandits out there, there were desert pirates, a common hazard along these major trade routes, and so you would be careful to go with a group you'd also bring your own food you'd have water you'd have bread and herbs and oil and it was it was called a grueling trip that's what it was known as a grueling trip you travel about 20 miles a day on foot and it wasn't flat land you were going up uphill and downhill So pretty much, you're going uphill on the way to Jerusalem and downhill on the way home. That's why it was always they went up to Jerusalem or they went down to go back home. And they were going for Passover. It's a one-day feast. You're like, wow, they they walked all those days just for one day. Well, it went through a whole week, but the feast was one day only, and it was followed immediately by a week-long feast of unleavened bread. So on Passover, the lambs would be killed, Uh, they would eat the evening Passover meal, they would ask those questions that they would ask every year, why is this night different than any other night? Why are we eating bitter herbs? Why are we dipping twice? Why is the bread unleavened? And then that would be followed by a week-long feast. The whole time was known as Passover. So they're there a week, and they're in pilgrimage there uh, at God's command. Exodus chapter 12 says three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 16 says three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God. So they're doing this. And verse 42 tells us that when Jesus was 12, this is significant, they went up according to their custom. Now here's the significance. He's 12 years old. What's a Jewish father to do with his kids as he's raising them? He was required to teach His kids, the word of God. Required to teach his kids the scriptures. That requirement has not gone away from Christian families, by the way. It's just often ignored. But the Jewish father would teach his children the law up to age 12. And then the turning point is when you hit 13. Because at that point, you're required to keep the law. Uh, At that point, when Jesus turned 13, he would have become a bar mitzvah, a son of the commandment. You know, we say, I'm going to a bar mitzvah. No, you you become a bar mitzvah. You're son of the commandment, a full uh, participating member of the religious community. You are now responsible for your commitment to God. And what Mary and Joseph are doing is they're prepping Jesus on a one-year trial run before he turns 13. This wouldn't have been uncommon to do. And this is what blows my mind. The Passover lamb is taken to Passover. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says. So what they do when they're there, they worship God, uh, then they start going home. And what happens next is pretty surprising. Now, his mom and dad don't know what's going on. We know because we can read the story. But verse 43 says, the feast is over. They're starting to head on back home. And the boy Jesus, the 12-year-old Jesus, stays behind in Jerusalem. And his parents don't know about it, and they they figure he's in the group. They got a big group of of family and extended family and friends and relatives and others, and so they're not thinking anything about it. They're just going along on the way home, and at some point in time, they realize he's missing. This is, you know, Home Alone first century style, okay? Now, almost every one of us has a story about being left behind, right? Right? And you go, oh, when I was a kid, this happened, or, you know. Me, my, my, my left behind stories are like all present day. Here, here's how one of them goes. You know, I, I get done with church. I go to all three services, and I hang out with people, talk, and then I walk out to the parking lot to find my truck, and it's not there. <laughs> and I call my family. Oh, we, we needed it. <laughs> We've left you to fend for yourself. <laughs> Can someone please pick me up? <laughs> Can someone give me a ride? Some of you have given me a ride home before. I remember once when I asked my kids in prep for the sermon, I said, have any of you ever been left behind by your parents? Because I can't remember. And my son, Michael, our son, Michael, says this. He goes, remember when I was younger? You left me at basketball team pictures? Now, I was the coach, okay? So I was in charge of the whole team. I had a good <laughs> excuse, right? Come on. Um, but the funny thing was I left, and I forgot that he was you know, supposed to come with me, and he calls me from a friend's dad's cell phone. Dad, you left me behind. So Mary and Joseph lose track of Jesus. Okay, Now Luke is not pointing out bad parenting here. Okay, he's, What he's doing is he's setting the stage to reveal the identity of Christ. Because this is what's going to happen in this passage. So they're searching for him. We're around verse 44 now. We're, we're, he's, they're searching for him. And, and they're going to everyone like, have you seen Jesus? Among the relatives and the acquaintances, no one has seen Jesus. So now they're in full-blown panic mode, right? And and they don't find him, and they're like, we got to go back to Jerusalem. So they go back to Jerusalem. Now here's the deal. You lose your kid or something, and they stay behind and you're like, oh, I had to drive, you know, 20 minutes to get you. Okay, so they're one day on the way home, on foot. They've already gone 20 miles. Now they go 20 miles back to Jerusalem. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph talking? When we find that kid, right? (laughs) But it tells us, verse 46, uh, after three days they find him. Now, I don't think that means they were looking in Jerusalem for three days. I think you got one day out, one day back, search around Jerusalem for a whole day, and finally make your way to the temple where there is 12-year-old Jesus holding court with the teachers. Now, it would have been not out of the ordinary for for someone to be asking the teachers questions. But to have the back and forth and actually be giving answers... Well, that would be amazing. And so they see him sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. But verse 47 says that all of them that heard him were amazed uh, at his understanding. It means he got it. He understood the scriptures. He knew what they were pointing to. And and by the way, they would have been talking about the Old Testament scriptures which testify of him, testify of Jesus. Now, I'm not amazed that they were amazed. We can read the whole story. They were amazed. They didn't know his identity. We know his identity. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. They weren't amazed. They were astonished. Okay? Now that literally means sudden shock. Okay? This is from a Latin word meaning uh, strike with thunder. They were lit up. This is stunned amazement. This is overwhelmed uh, you know, emotion. And I don't think it was because he had great Bible answers. They were upset that he had stayed behind. And so verse 48, his mother, not happy, says to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, this was designed to make him feel guilty. Intense rebuke, a very intense rebuke here. We've been anxiously looking for you. You know what that means? We've been in agony. Our souls have been tormented. We've been in grief. We've been in pain. Mary and Joseph are beside themselves. And the big question is, why did you do this? I was asked that a lot of times when I was growing up. I never knew why I did it. Jesus did. So here's what he said, verse 49. Here's the big point of this passage. This is the main point of the passage right here. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, some people uh, will open up their Bible, and let's say you have the King James or another translation. It will say, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? The interesting thing here, and this is a puzzling, cryptic thing he says to his parents. In fact, it tells us later they did not understand what he said. But the interesting thing about this is, you know, is it house or business? It's neither. Neither word is in the Bible there. In, in fact, uh, there's no word there. So they didn't make a mistake translating it. There's no word to translate. This will happen sometimes. You have to go to the context to figure out what word is supposed to be in there. What word do you fill in the blank there? So some translators have filled in house. Some have... Filled in my father's business, okay? So, what's the best option? There's another one I think is better, and it's this. So, just think about this. The word for word in the Greek, it reads like this In the of my father, it is necessary for me to be. I mean, who talks like this, right? Jesus did. Uh, In the of my father, it is necessary for me to be. So, is it my father's house? Is it my father's business? The better option is this, my father's things, the things of my father, because there's a plural in there, so you have to explain that. It's my father's affairs, it's literally the things of my father. This is the, the main point of this passage. So the contrast here is when Mary comes up and says, your father and I, and Jesus says, I must be about my fathers, and father there is not Joseph. Jesus was all about the things of God the Father. But, but what things? Is there like a whole list of things that, you know, just unravels and you see it? Or is there, is, is there more of a focus here? And there's more of a focus. In fact, it's focused on one thing. One thing. Main point of this passage, is Jesus says, I, 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 Why were you looking? there was nowhere else for me to be but here didn't you know that i must be about my father's things about the things of my father and the and the one thing that he is pointing to is the cross the work of redemption god's plan of the ages to save lost sinners paul told timothy this is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance christ jesus came into the world To save sinners. What Jesus is doing here at at 12 years old is he's picking this opportune moment right before in his culture he becomes a man at age 13 when he had to take full responsibility and he's alerting his parents to this is why I'm here. I must be about the things of my father. And he's pointing to the cross. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that anyone claimed that, that God was his personal father. No one would talk like this. Jews would say, God is our father in creation, he created us. The nation of Israel would say, He's our father uh, over the nation. No one is going to say, God is my personal father and the reason why is because of the implication of it. If you say that, what you're saying is you are God. That is what Jesus is saying here. He's basically saying, I'm God. I'm here for a purpose. My time on earth is for a purpose. My primary concern, love you Mary and Joseph, but it's not to do your will to do the will of God the Father. God's purpose took precedent over his earthly family. He he had to follow his calling, and that was going to bring pain, and that was going to bring misunderstanding. So he chooses this crucial moment on the brink of manhood to remind his parents that he is God. Look back in Luke chapter 2. To when Simeon held newborn Jesus, eight days old, in his arms. Verse 28. Took him in his arms. Blesses God. And he says this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. The prophets had been promising over and over again. God had spoken through the prophets to say salvation is coming. And Simeon is declaring salvation is here. My eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. There is no one else he could be referring to but God Almighty here and he's holding eight-day-old Jesus in his arms. His father and mother marveled at what was said about him and and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. This is about the cross for a sign that is opposed. That's about the cross. And then he said, a sword will even pierce your own heart and it's gonna reveal the thoughts of many hearts. It's all about the cross and all about how some are gonna receive Christ, and some are going to reject Christ. He will be killed at Jerusalem, that he will rise after three days. He had to be about his father's things. This is the first saying of Jesus in the New Testament. It's the first time anything is recorded as coming out of his mouth. Why were you looking for me? You didn't know where to look. There was no other place for me to be. He's pointing them to the cross. He said, I I had to be there. I didn't have an option. I didn't have a choice. It was a necessity. It was binding on me. It had to happen. In fact, when when he says, I I had to be or I I must be, that gets followed up in other places in the Gospels, and especially in the Gospel of Luke. That's very significant wording. In Luke 4, 43 he says i must preach the kingdom of god for i was sent for this purpose in luke 9:22 the son of man must suffer many things be rejected by the elders chief priests and scribes be killed and raised on the third day luke 13:33 i must journey on today and tomorrow and next day for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of jerusalem in luke 17:25 i must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation in Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, he says, "What is written must be fulfilled of me," and then he quotes Isaiah fifty-three twelve. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he says that which refers to me has its fulfillment. He is talking about the cross. In Luke twenty-four seven, after the cross, after the resurrection, before he is ascended to the Father, he is speaking to these two. Disciples on the road to Emmaus, and here's what he says. The Son of Man, didn't you know? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified, and the third day rise again. In Luke 24, 26, he says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? He is talking about the cross. I had to be in my Father's house. He knew who he was. He knew who his father was. God the father. This is talking about the incarnation. God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ. 100% God, 100% man. Here You have the God man at 12 years old. The Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign savior of the world, who came to earth to die for sinners, long before the cross, telling his parents, this is what you need to know right now. And he's doing it respectfully. He's not trying to hurt them. What he is doing is he is foreshadowing his future and theirs. And he's doing it in the temple. Very significant. The temple was the place of God's glory. When Jesus was born, the angels cried out, Glory to God in the highest. What had happened is the Shekinah glory of God had departed the temple before the Babylonian destruction of Solomon's temple in 586 B.C. It was absent from the temple that had been rebuilt after the 70-year exile. The glory was absent from Herod's ornate temple. But every time that Jesus, the glorious one, entered the temple, the glory returned. Jesus is the glory. Here he is presented in the temple at eight days old. He's back in the temple at 12 years old. He goes to the temple other times during his earthly ministry. He cleanses the temple. M- move over to John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, right after the wedding at Cana in Galilee, it says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Verse 13, And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. what sign do you show us for doing these things? Like, why are you messing up our business? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they're thinking he's talking about the physical temple. They say, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Christ is. The glory. He says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that he had spoken. Go over to John chapter 18. In one verse, John 18 verse 37. Here you have him back in the temple area before the cross. And he is being grilled by Pilate. And Pilate says to him in verse 37, John 18 37. So you're king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He's talking about those who would believe in him for eternal life because he came for the cross. Verse 50 tells us that at that moment in time in the temple that day when he's 12 years old, they didn't understand what he was saying. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Now That became very common among those who followed Christ. This is the first of many times that they, people did not understand what Jesus said. And, and think of his mom and dad, in spite of all the indicators, they had missed it. Uh, announcements of his birth in Luke 1 and the angel's message in, in Luke 1 and prophetic pronouncements about him and, And and 12 years had passed, and they're living life quietly under the radar. They weren't thinking about God's plan of the ages for the salvation of the lost. What they were thinking is, why did our son give us such a fright? And I love what happens next. Look at verse 51. I love this. It tells us, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. He just goes home and, and just lives life as a normal 12-year-old. He goes back, he obeys his mom and dad, he helps with the carpentry, he does his chores, he eats and sleeps and hangs out with his brothers and sisters and probably friends in the neighborhood because his time had not yet come. It wasn't time for the cross yet. What he does is he obeys scripture. That's what he does. He obeys the fifth commandment. He obeys the word of God. Honor your father and mother submits to his parents. He's a son of God, laid aside his privileges as God, never gave up his deity, but didn't always exercise his full authority. And he's waiting for the time when he, the Passover lamb, would be sacrificed for our sins. And then verse 51, her, his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Uh, she's been taking notes. If she had a journal, this would be in there. And then, in verse 52, it just starts like it, It ends like it started in verse 40 with a bookend. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. On the way to the cross. On the way to the cross that he just reminded them of. So you got this brief post in 12-year-old Jesus' life, and it points us to one thing. His death his death for us. I want to point out some gospel takeaways based on this one thing. That that Jesus coming to earth for one thing basically changes everything in your life. When you come to faith in Christ and you become a believer in Jesus, everything changes. Your, Your worldview changes. Now you want to please God. Now you want to know desperately what the word of God says and what you need to do in response. And you start living life with this The lens of the gospel and and with a biblical worldview and a desire to honor Christ and a desire to glorify Christ and be about Christ. So what are the gospel takeaways that we see right in this passage from this one big thing, the death of Christ? I will tell you that following Jesus is not like, oh yeah, well, you know, it's It's about all these ideas I have. It's practical in your life. It is intensely practical in your life. Following Jesus and, and living the gospel is intensely practical. It has to hit you where you live. So the first gospel takeaway is scripture. The word of God, which is sufficient, which is authoritative, which is binding on our consciences. The written word of God to be enjoyed and obeyed. God is speaking to us through the written word of God. Martin Luther said, let the one who wants to hear God speak read Holy Scripture. Thomas Watson said, thinking every line that you read that God is speaking to me. Most importantly, Jesus said, your word is truth. He's talking about the written word of God. He says to people, you understand neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Back then, it was the responsibility of of parents to teach their kids the Word of God. That responsibility did not get set aside after the cross. The responsibility of Christian parents is to teach their kids the Word of God, and it is often a neglected privilege. Probably the most common resource I give to men who are getting married and, and men I meet with in the church is a family worship Bible guide, which has questions. Uh, on every chapter in the Bible. And and it's a reminder to open up the Bible with your household, whoever is in your household, and hear the word together and pray together and worship God together daily. As you get stronger in Christ, as you grow more in Christ, this should become less of a weird idea to you. It should always be a part of our thought as, as Christian households that we ought to be reading the Word of God and praying, worshiping God together daily. What did Jesus do in the temple? He's asking questions. He's giving answers. He's learning and growing. He'd been taught the Word of God growing up. Let me ask you a question. This, this question has convicted me greatly recently. I've been thinking about it for several weeks, and I'm going to ask you this question. How long have you been reading the Bible? Some of you might say, well, I just started, maybe a year. Others of you, five years, 10 years, 20 years. Someone might say, I've been reading the Bible for 50 years. So here's my second question. When was the last time one of your opinions changed? When was the last time, from from reading the Bible, one of your opinions or your thoughts or your attitudes actually changed? And if you're at a loss right now and you're like, I don't remember then you're probably approaching the word of God as you're over it versus being under it and, and, and letting God, the Holy Spirit, transform your life by it. In scripture, we have a God's revelation of himself, and as a believer reads the Bible, they receive from the spirit of God what is known as illumination. This is how you understand the word of God. But we are also to be meditating on the word of God, thinking it over in our minds, living with it, chewing it. It literally means, meditation on the scriptures literally means muttering to yourself the Bible, like you walk around muttering the Bible to yourself. The Bible gives you a God-centric orientation in life, a Christ-focused orientation in life, a heart fixed on Christ. So scripture is the first thing you see here. This is what Jesus obeying scripture is teaching. Jesus being taught scripture by his parents and even him interacting with the teachers who are talking about scripture that points to him. Secondly, it's about incarnation. Uh, There's a gospel takeaway with incarnation. Remember, he's not Joseph's son. The eternal son of God come down from heaven under the authority of God the Father. Uh, In Luke 1.32, it says he is the son of the most high he, in Luke one thirty five he is the son of God. It means he is equal to God. Here's God breaking into human history and sending the savior of the world. Thomas Watson said he lay in a manger that we might live in paradise. He came from heaven that, we might, that he might bring us to heaven. And what was all this but love? If our hearts are not rocks, this love of Christ should affect us. So here's Jesus alerting his family early on why he came to earth, why the incarnation. Uh, centuries of prophecy condensed into a young life. Almighty God, as one writer put it, contracted to a span. Incarnation is huge. It's God with us. John Wesley on his deathbed, March 2nd, 1791. His family's by his side. Uh, here's the words he mustered the strength to say. The best of all is God is with us. Jesus said, I am with you always. Paul says, Christ lives in me. Best thing about you, if you're a believer, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Best thing about you. Incarnation's important. Number three, honor is important here. Uh, Jesus had a priority commitment to God the Father over love for family. But in Luke 14, 26, what you see is that you're supposed to love your family a lot. You're supposed to love Jesus more. So love for Christ is never an excuse to abandon your family or neglect your family. The lordship of Christ leads you to love your family. This is why it's such a strong word in 1 Timothy 5.8 in the context of caring for widows when it says, if anyone does not provide for his own house, his own relatives, especially for the members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You honor God by honoring your parents. This is the fifth command. It's the fifth command, honor your father and mother. Now, that's music to every parent's ears, right? Because we think, oh, you know, our kids need to do this for us. Uh, now it becomes a source of heartache when, when it's ignored by kids of all ages. But well, what you need to know is the fifth command was first and foremost applied to adults to honor their aging parents, and then it's applied to children as well. And obviously in Ephesians six and Colossians three, it's applied to children. You listen to your parents, you obey them. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So kids, if you're under your parents' authority, if you're under their roof, submit to them as Jesus did to his parents. God incarnate could do it, you can do it. You gotta set aside your pride. You gotta serve God's purpose. Obey your parents and the Lord. It is right. You gotta honor those that God has set over you to shepherd your life. And by the way, think about your, your parents for a moment. Whatever age you are, think about your parents. They were put over you by God to shepherd your life. That's a tough job. Someone had to do it. God chose your parents. He works all things together for good to those who love him, so you go, but what about the bad stuff? Yeah, you got, you got, yeah, you got raised by a, by a sinner, by a sinner or two. Now, I know it's Mother's Day, and uh, sometimes I preach the next passage, and next week we'll get back into Romans, uh, sometimes I'll take another passage. Today we took another passage, and I, I just want to acknowledge Mother's Day, but I want to acknowledge the joy of it and the sorrows of it, uh, the joy of it and the sadness of it. Uh, the joy of it, and the grief of it. Uh, some of you would be in pain on Mother's Day, and, and, and some of you are, are honored and, and highly uh, encouraged. Some of you are ignored. Um, some of you couldn't have kids. Uh, some of you are trying but cannot have kids. Some of you, your mother is gone. Uh, some of you, you had a difficult relationship with your mother. But I just want to tell you that you hear it from me. It is all welcome Whatever you offer to God in terms of your experience of that. Whatever you want to bring to God. Bring your sadness, your joy, and everything in between. And he's going to meet you at that place. Right where you're at. And even as we corporately gather together. Everyone can rejoice in in the cross. Everyone can rejoice in the resurrection that we have in salvation in Christ. If you're a believer, all of us can rejoice in that. But Honoring God. Parents pleases God, and you got to serve him in the life stage you find yourself now. You initiate blessing, you initiate sacrifice uh, to the one you cherish and value, honor. Fourth gospel takeaway is um, I'm going to call it release. So here you have a mother loving her son, knowing that she was chosen by God to raise the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And she knew she had to let her son go, release him to his God ordained. Calling and mission in life and think about a mother's heart a mother's heart you have a lot of moms here a a mother's heart is beautiful Uh, but moms you know i don't have to remind you but you're 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 raising wicked little sinners (laughs) that are beautiful at times but they're wicked little sinners and you're like but mary got the son of god (laughs) can you imagine how convicting that must have been (laughs) so perfect would have been painful too to see him set his face toward Jerusalem. It would have been painful to see her son die at the hands of wicked men. She had to release him by faith. This last weekend, Angela and I were, were gone and we, we, we flew a kite one day and the thing about a kite is it's got a string attached to it and if you, if you fly it right, you get it back, okay? And, and it's got a string on it. You can get way out there but you can still pull it back in okay? Parenting is not kite flying. Parenting is more like archery, okay? It's, it's letting the arrows fly, and when you let the arrow fly, it's out of your hands. In fact, if you go to Psalm 127, what you'll notice there is that it says that children are a gift from the Lord, a heritage from the Lord, and it also says like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. What are arrows meant to do? Not be kept in the quiver, but to let them fly. So releasing had to be tough for Mary, I mean, remember the time at the wedding of, in Cana of Galilee where she's like, hey, whatever he says, do you do it? And he's, he's like, my time has not yet come. Like, the cross is not now. Or the time that she and, and Jesus' brothers and sisters show up at a house that he's speaking, and they're like, by the way, your mother and sisters and brother are out, brothers are outside looking for you? He's like, oh, great. She would have remembered. She would have remembered many moments. Um, uh, the most heart she would be seeing him die on the cross, and, and here is Jesus looking down uh, at his mother from the cross, and he says to John, uh, behold your mother. One of the beautiful, most beautiful spots in scripture, and, and he says uh, to Mary, behold your son. He's gonna take care of his mom. but She had to get out of the way and let it happen, right? If you wanna see the glory of Christ applied practically in your life, you want your loved ones in Christ, to as well, you got to get out of your own way to let it happen. You got to examine your heart. Uh, we give ourselves all sorts of names nowadays as parents. Um, there's the helicopter parent that hovers all the time, and is right there, kind of controlling things. You got the submarine parent. You can't find them; <laughs> they're just absent. Uh, you got the bulldozer parent that's like, "We're going." But what you want is a beautiful balance. Of being a vessel of God's grace, that's what you want. What, what you want is to know that you're not the pilot controlling uh, the vehicle. You're a passenger, and God's the pilot, and you need to be appropriately engaged. You can't control every situation. You've got to let the arrows fly and release them to God. Uh, not in the lives of two and three-year-olds, by the way, just you know as they grow older. Last thing. number five, the cross that one thing that jesus was here on earth for so jesus appropriately is laser focused on the cross at a young age under his parents authority while the plan is unfolding the god man knew why he came to earth he came to die for sinners Uh, his face was set towards jerusalem's cross and his father's saving purposes and the cross is the glory in John chapter 10, Jesus says something very significant. In verse 17 and 18, he says, I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, I have authority to take it up again, and this charge I received from my Father. And maybe you're like Jesus' parents today, you're not understanding it. Lost in a crowd, spiritually speaking. I just want you to know the gospel message is for everyone to hear to respond to jesus uh, died in our place he shed his blood he paid the penalty our sins deserved he was buried He, he rose on the third day he ascended to the father he is coming back to judge the living and the dead you need to trust in the lord jesus christ and you will be saved your sins will be forgiven you will have peace with God forever, secured in Christ. Uh, you'll be right with God, and, and, and every Christian says this, that was God's doing. God saved me. I didn't save myself. It's to the praise of the glory of his grace. If you're lost today, Jesus is the answer to your lostness. Isaiah sixty-six thirteen 13 says this, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. That's a beautiful picture. You know what Isaiah's saying? Salvation is coming what we say today is salvation appeared believe in jesus Uh, he fulfilled all righteousness you are unrighteous jesus is perfect you got to lean on him Uh, this is not about feeling good about yourself it's about loving jesus if you think you can earn salvation you're going to either go to pride or despair you need to receive god's mercy and grace in christ and you will have hope you need to say i am unable but the gospel tells me jesus met my need at the cross God is our parent. (laughs) He never loses us. He seeks us. He finds us. He always knows where we are. He, He seeks for the lost. He brings back the scattered. He's our good shepherd. Jesus was all about the things of his father. Jesus was all about the cross. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. He did not come to give you an easier life. He did not come to make you more self-centered. He came so that we would forget about ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, that we would deny ourselves and live for Christ, that you would let everything in life drive you desperately to Christ because we are nothing apart from him. He is everything to us. You open up the scriptures, they point you to Jesus, the word of God. You think of the incarnation that points us to, to Jesus Christ, God with us. You think about honor, that points you to the highly honored one, the one who has the name above all names. You think about releasing even your children to God, it points you to Jesus who sets us free from sin and shame. And you think of the cross and it points us to Jesus, our substitute sacrifice, who took the curse for us. so We wouldn't follow crowds. We would follow Him. Lord God, we thank you that, that this is all about all about you and what you did at the cross. And Lord, we, we want to be about your things. We want to glory in Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.